Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is February 3rd, 2023, and I'm joined as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we want to talk about what you're calling the public healthization of policy. And uh, we're going to start by snarking a little bit about the fact that a day or two ago, word came out of the Biden administration that they were planning to cancel the COVID-19 emergency declaration in May. So, as I said, this is the beginning of February. So that's several months from now. They are going to cancel the COVID-19 emergency declaration. And And I would like I would like to suggest that if you can schedule the end of an emergency, it it isn't an emergency anymore <laughs> because we you don't know how long emergencies are going to last. And of course, we have uh, we've had if our listeners are somewhat confused by that because they have heard the Biden administration and President Joe Biden himself say at various times, uh, the pandemic's over. We're done with that. So why would you keep a public health emergency if you don't actually have to have an emergency or if there's not an emergency still in place. We should also point out that the Biden administration has literally argued in court that the COVID-19 emergency was over when they were trying to lift Trump era uh, restrictions on immigration. Title 42, I think it is. Yes. That was yes. ba- that is based on the fact there were restrictions on immigration based on the fact that we're having a public health emergency. So so even while maintaining the official decree, they argued in court that the emergency was over. So why is it that the Biden administration finds advantages in maintaining this this emergency declaration of COVID long after the general public has concluded that the COVID-19 pandemic is over. I mean, barring another really, really dangerous mutation, uh, we're all living as if this emergency is long over, all but the Biden administration. Well, the short answer is it gives the president and to some extent governors more power to do things without having to run it through their state legislatures and get approval, bipartisan approval for some of the things they want to do. So right now, the Department of Health and Human Services says there's three uh, public health emergencies in in force. Uh, one is the COVID-19 emergency. Uh, another is the opioid emergency. And then there's the monkeypox that we're not hearing much about anymore. Um, but they have to, when, when a president uh, creates a public health emergency, uh, it has a 90-day duration. So it lasts for 90 days. And then they can re uh, re up that emergency which president biden has been doing on uh covid for several times but they can reignite the emergency to continue on if they don't feel like it's over but as i said it gives them the ability to be able to do the federal government and to some extent governors the ability to be able to do things they couldn't do otherwise and that's why they do it now this has um this idea that executive branches use emergency powers uh, to do things they would ordinarily, ordinarily not be able to do is something that we all became keenly aware of early on in the COVID-19 pandemic, because you mm-hmm. had governors of both red and blue states adopting policies, sometimes pulling them out of thin air, sometimes doing it based on the advice of 
their advisors. Uh, but but a lot of the stuff, you know, didn't have to go through le- the state legislatures. It didn't even have to go through regulatory agencies in the states. And of course, you had ridiculous policies like you're allowed to go into um, you're allowed to go into Home Depot or Lowe's and you're allowed to buy some things, but you're not allowed to pick up any carrot seeds while you're <laughs> while you're there and things like that. So a lot of the stuff was arbitrary. There was a lot of variation in policies adopted by different states. And that was disturbing to some people out there, not to you and me, because we're federalists and we believe the states are laboratories of democracy. But on the other hand, there wasn't any democracy involved in this case, because it was simply the executive branch imposing policies at their will. Right. And this is to some extent similar to the expansion of executive orders that Barack Obama sort of did so much of because when he was when President Penn, I have a pen and a phone, couldn't get his things, his pro, uh, programs through Congress. He decided to try to do it through executive order. Donald Trump followed that to some extent and has as has Joe Biden. But all of this has the background of we have things we want to do. We can't get them passed through Congress. So let's do it under something that the executive branch can do unilaterally. And so, for example, uh, the Biden administration would like to expand Medicaid. They would like to have Medicaid go out to a lot more people. They can't get that passed through Congress. But with a public health emergency, you can expand Medicaid. And he has. And so right now, the concern is we Medicaid uh, rolls uh, grew significantly. We've now got about 90 million Americans on Medicaid, roughly, I think, about 20, 25 million more than before the pandemic started. Uh, and when the public health emergency ends in May, uh, that's going to go away from Medicaid. And the Biden administration has been in something of a panic as to how you get all these people who had Medicaid, many of whom may not be otherwise qualified for Medicaid, how you make sure they continue to get public health insurance at government expense. And that is probably, I mean, am am I right in assuming that that's probably the biggest reason why the Biden administration wants to leave this emergency declaration in place as long as possible, just because of that headache? Because, you know, once you've given out something to people, it's very hard to pull it back. Well, you know, one of the reasons why they wanted to keep the emergency on was it allowed the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to be able to uh, require um, people to wear a mask on airplanes, even though most people didn't want to wear a mask on airplanes. Yeah. Um, another thing is Medicare. Uh, so they're a- they were able to expand some of the payments for Medicare, which... Uh, came up to, I believe if I remember right, about 20%, Medicare would pay a hospital about 20% more for a person who had COVID. Um, and there were other things that the uh, that Medicare paid for, it, it enhanced reimbursements if the person had COVID. And this has recently come up as there has been discussion of we probably overcounted the number of COVID deaths because every time somebody had COVID, uh, they that was considered even if they had cardiac arrest or or were killed in an auto accident. If they had COVID, that was counted as a COVID hat was a contributing factor. And that allowed the hospitals to make more money. It allowed the system to make more money. Uh, and it there was a financial incentive to enhance the number of people who died with COVID. And what you might say of that is there are a lot more people who died with COVID than people who died of COVID. You know, it's beginning to be clear to me 
how it is that in the last few years we've run up the national debt so high <laughs> because uh, all of these scenarios that we talk about, about uh, more money for hospitals, more money for Medicaid and all that kind of stuff, that's all federal spending. That's all stuff we're borrowing uh, you know, to spend that money. We don't have that money, but uh, we've certainly become generous as a result of this pandemic. A lot of people, and I'm one of them, have concluded from this pandemic experience that too much emergency power has been delegated to executives, not just at the White House, but also at the state level. Uh, you know, you can understand sort of during the horse and buggy days, if there's a genuine emergency and, you know, it takes, you know, a week for a legislature to gather or something like that, that you would want the chief executive to be able to act. Um, but that's not the case anymore, you know, at the state level or at the federal level. I mean, Congress and the state legislatures could act pretty quickly in the case of a genuine emergency. Um, you know, I could I could see saying you get to make a 90 day or 60 day or 30 day emergency declaration, but but only once, you know, and, th and then at that point, now it's time for the legislature to actually choose the policy going forward rather than just letting these governors and the president just continually roll it over, roll it over, roll it over as long as they think they can politically get away with it. And of course, we, we've talked about the three that are currently in effect. But uh, when when a hurricane comes, sometimes there's a public health emergency declared and you, you can understand why that might be the case. And usually within a relatively short time, that that public health emergency goes away. You get the 90 days and they may not re up the public health emergency. So there's there's cases where you could you can make the case that maybe it's necessary. But as you point out, maybe you get one time, maybe you get one extension. But we've been with the public health emergency for COVID for for uh, what two years now three years yeah. and yeah. Uh, it's not and there's going been to plenty of, there's been plenty of time in the intervening time for legislatures to set the policy right maybe it's not, not maybe not in the first thirty or sixty days but after that you know especially you know it doesn't take it doesn't take a week or ten days for a legislature to gather anymore and so you know I'd be in favor of legislation both at the state and federal level that limit the ability of executives to just extend these kinds of emergency declarations so so indefinitely. And another thing, of course, the uh, uh, public health emergency allows it allows Department of Health and Human Services to shift money around to do various things. So what this does is it empowers uh, both the executive branch and the agencies under the executive branch to do various things they wouldn't normally have the power to do. And that's where I think we're seeing this gradual creep of people in power finding ways to try to extend and expand their power without having to go through the legislative process. And the irony here is that the current administration is constantly out there complaining about the decline of de and the threat to democracy that we have, but they want to try to keep uh, amassing powers for themselves without going through the democratic process. Yeah, this this is, of course, is a pet peeve of mine is and that uh, a self-governing people chooses the rules for themselves and they do it through legislation, not by having them imposed from the executive branch. And over time, we've we're, we have lost more and more of that ability to govern ourselves and set the rules for ourselves because so much power has been accruing in executive branches, both at the federal level and the state level and executive branch agencies and and. So so much of what affects our lives these days 
never went through a legislature. You know, it, it came as a, as a result of a court decision or a judge or it was imposed by an emergency order or an executive order or something like that. So it, it, that to me is the larger context here is we've already got a, a dangerous tension in the idea, there's a tension between the idea of self-government and executive power. And the more executive, the more power the executive branch has, the less power we have to govern ourselves. And so it's entirely possible that over time, legislatures have just simply delegated too much power to the executive branch, and it'd be nice to claw some of that back. Now, we should talk for a second about, you know, at the state level, we, we talked earlier about some really egregious examples of the use of the emergency declarations. But, you know, we we here at the Institute for Policy Innovation are based in Texas. And there was an interesting dynamic here in Texas where uh, Governor Abbott, uh, a conservative Republican in a very red state, has also been rolling over emergency declarations. And this has really peeved a lot of grassroots Republicans because they they just assumed that he's doing it for some nefarious reason uh, just like so many governors in blue states and the Biden administration has done. But that's not necessarily the case in Texas, is it? Right. Our understanding is one of the reasons he has done that is because the city of Houston would like to uh, do a number of things that he uh, with re- with regard to health care and so forth, and that by keeping the uh, public emergency status going, he has the ability to override some of the things that they might want to do. And this gets back to something that you and I have talked about uh, in the past, which is states are states created the federal government, states create the uh, municipalities and the counties and so forth, and the states are sort of the lead. Uh, on these things. And counties and cities uh, oftentimes want to try to do something to show their uh, uh, their wokeness or other things and try to jump off into various areas that they really don't have any ability or authority to do. And the state sometimes steps in and stops them from doing that. And you get some pushback from some people, especially cons- including conservatives, who say, no, 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 we like local control. But sometimes the uh, the local cities should not be in control of these things. Yeah, you're right. We we at IPI have really pushed back on this and urged state legislatures to assert their authority rather than always deferring to cities and municipalities. You have a different dynamic in a red state and a blue state. In a blue state, I mean, cities tend to be blue, right? They the, the cities really tend cities, strongly yeah. to have uh, left leaning progressive governments, and so in a blue state. Uh, the city governments are sort of on the same page you know, with the with the state legislature and with the state executive branch. But in a red state, you have a different tension where you will very often have cities that are blue and want to be progressive. But you have a state legislature that is red and wants to pr- protect individual liberty, economic liberty and all that sort of thing. And so in a red state, um, it may be that a governor like Governor Abbott uh, is able to actually use an emergency declaration to actually do good and to actually keep people free from r- some of the ridiculous things that the cities would have done if they had the power to do it. Now, so, I, I would I would still like to see the state legislature take that action rather than the executive branch. So not every use or extension of emergency powers by governors is necessarily in and of itself harmful to individual freedom. 
So we know, for instance, that the city of Denton in Texas decided it wanted to ban fracking, I believe it was, and the state stepped in, and I think it went through the legislature, but they had to pass legislation to stop that. You had the city of Houston, well, during the uh, during the 2020 election, wanting to do various things having to do with uh, elections, uh, drive-through voting, and other things, and the state said that is not allowed under our law, and Governor Abbott stepped in to stop that. And you also have sometimes cities saying we're going to pass a bathroom bill that allows everybody to go to whatever bathroom they feel like they want to go to, and the state has, may step in and stop some of those things. So yes, especially in the, uh, in a red state, if blue cities decide they want to do their virtue signaling, you may very well have the state step in and say, no, we're not going to let you do that. Yeah, another good example is the way Austin essentially regulated Uber out of the city. And then the state legislature passed a law basically stopping them from doing that. So we are big fans of state preemption of local control when local control is eroding economic or personal liberty for people. Um, but again, I would still prefer it to come from the state legislature rather than from the from the governor's office. And in the examples you mentioned, it, it was legislative action, whether it was debt and fracking or whether it was Austin and Uber and those sorts of things. Uh, that's the right way to do that. OK, so these have been some examples of ways recently that emergency declarations have been used and are being used and and we would argue abused. Uh, but that doesn't mean these are the only way. There's always there's always new opportunities for executives to use emergency declarations to, again, try to accomplish means that they know they can't get through a legislative process, but they could try to use an executive or the decree of an emergency in order to accomplish that. And one of the things that we saw recently here was a new story that uh, HHS Secretary Bracera has said that uh, they they're considering using a public health emergency in order to be able to expand access to abortion. And of course, that has become a a real hot topic in the country as there's uh, debates going on at the state level, the federal level and so forth. And so the Biden administration can't push through legislation to, in essence, guarantee abortions, but they're thinking about using apparently the the public, a public health emergency. And I, I have not seen enough as to what they might try to use that for, how they're going to expand it or what their intentions are, but they are apparently at least considering using a public health emergency to expand abortion, which would allow them to, in some ways, override the state's prerogatives here. Boy, you talk about something that is that is designed to generate a flurry of lawsuits <laughs> <laughs> and, and all sorts of constitutional questions. Oh, boy. Well, so the abortion wars are not over, are they? Again, and, though, again, though, something that, sh that should be determined through a self-governing legislative process, not through, you know, emergency orders and executive orders and decrees from the federal government. And you're right. If if the if the president moves forward with something in that line, uh, there will be a flurry of uh, lawsuits filed against him. And at this point, I haven't looked at the total, but at this point so far, the the Biden administration has not had a lot of success going to the courts. No, they they they, they typically lose. And I don't even know how you would formulate the legal argument, because the Supreme Court has essentially already said that there is no inherent right to an abortion. Mm -hmm. So if there's no inherent right to an abortion, then what would be the basis for 
the federal government essentially trying to override states and saying, you know, we have to act to protect your rights. And the Supreme Court's already said you don't have a right, an inherent right to an abortion. Oh, boy. So that's the next that's then one of the next potential fights coming down the road. Well, obviously, this trend of the public healthization of policy is a bad trend. Not everything is a matter of health policy. Not everything is an emergency and not everything is the role of the executive branch. So for those of us who believe in limited constitutional government, uh, these kinds of overreaches, these kinds of expansions of executive power are things that are not anticipated in the Constitution. And so we don't like them. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast. We would invite you to check out our website at IPI.org and sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed the podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.